You're listening to episode 134 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. It's the 17th of February 2021 here in Norwich as we're recording. How are you doing, Steph? I'm not too bad, thank you. Glad the weather's warming up now. How are you? Yeah, the snow has gone. The snow was fun for about three days and then it just got annoying, I decided. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would personally argue less. I liked it for about a day and then when it started getting... <laughs> Icy and slushy. I was like, "Cool, bring bring in the bring in the spring now." Yeah, we don't get to experience Dragon Hall in the sun anymore, which is a real shame. I know. Or Dragon Hall in the snow. Dragon Hall in the snow is absolutely beautiful in the garden and with the glass gallery and everything. It looks lovely. Our chief exec Chris sent some photos over that we got to admire from a distance. But yeah, I'm I'm missing Dragon Hall particularly this week. Indeed. Today we have something slightly different. To what we normally have. We are talking with a film director and the author of a book upon which a film was based. So this is the movie To Olivia, which is out this Friday. It's showing on Sky Cinema and Now TV from the 19th of February. And we got Stephen Michael Shearer, the writer of An Unquiet Life, which was the book the film was based on, and also John Hay, who has directed and adapted the novel. And Peggy is is on the podcast today to chat to both of them. And you sat in on this chat, didn't you, Steph? And I thought it was a really interesting example of how when you translate a book, and it's kind of like translation, uh, when, a, when a book goes on that little journey from being a book to being a film, it kind of goes through so many people. There's hundreds of people who are kind of fiddling around with it. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, a, a procession, isn't it? So you've got the writer who's written the book and then they've passed it on to the director or the screenplay writer and they're putting their own interpretation on it and then that's being passed down to the actors involved. So it's a yeah, really, really interesting process and it's quite a... I mean, for me personally, this is like a perfect marriage of my interests. I love watching film um, and I love reading books. So we haven't had, as you say, much of an opportunity to before to look into how that kind of translation and how the adaptation works. So To Olivia is based on Stephen Michael Shearer's biography about Patricia Neal, the wife of Roald Dahl. Uh, And the biography, as you mentioned, was called An Unquiet Life. So um, in the film, uh, Patricia Neal, who's played by Keely Halls and Roald Dahl, retreat to the English countryside to bring up their young family. The seemingly unlikely pair, the glamorous American star and the British author, find their relationship put to the test by a tragic loss. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I grew up on Roald Dahl books, so I kind of know the books inside out and absolutely love them. But I don't think I've ever really known that much about him or his family background. So listening to the interview and some of the kind of awful events that they had to contend with was a bit of a shock, actually. And the idea that these you know beloved children's novels were able to be produced by this writer, despite what was happening in his personal life, I found quite remarkable that he could kind of output that kind of book while going through a lot of this stuff. And Stephen talks uh, quite a lot about having known Patricia very, very well, having travelled with Patricia. She was very much involved in the process of writing um, this book. But at the same time, there were also moments when, you know, maybe their opinions on what should or shouldn't be included in the book or how it was written were kind of slightly at odds as well. So it's really interesting to hear Stephen talk about the process of writing it. And then John talks about the the process of turning that book into um, something more visual. So before we get into the interview, uh, what else is happening at the National Centre for Writing at the moment, Steph? 
Well, we had a very busy week and we launched the latest in our Early Career Writers Resources pack. So this time we've pulled together a pack all about dialogue. Yeah, so Hannah Berry has put together this brilliant illustrated guide on how to do comics dialogue. We have Chris Beckett, who is a winner of the Arthur C. Clarke Award, talking to Sam Ruddock about his novel Two Tribes and how he uses conversation and communication between humans to explore particular issues and kind of covers how we're actually not that different to animals in certain ways. Uh, Femi Coyote, who is also teaching one of our online courses at the moment, has his essential script writing tips. We have Karis Davies, who's put together a lovely article called The Magic of Dialogue. And to to quote from that article, she says, uh, one of the things I've come to realise over the years is that my characters only become real to me when I can hear them speak. And then finally, we have Taylor Beidler, who examines the flow of dialogue and the kind of feedback loop that exists when people communicate and how you can replicate that in fiction. So yeah, there's tons of great free stuff there. And you can find it by heading over to the National Centre for Writing website, which is nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, and you'll find links on the homepage. Brilliant. Uh, And I just wanted to give a shout out to two new events that we've just announced and all of the details are on our website currently. These are free events which will be taking place on YouTube and you can sign up in advance now. These are part of our Meet the World series. So we're going to be talking to our UNESCO virtual writers in residence. We have five of them at the moment and we've mentioned them before. We've been working with them on some really fantastic projects, including uh, daily writing prompts that have been going up over on our Instagram page throughout February. So in March and April, we're going to put on these two um, brilliant events where the writers will be talking about what it's like to visit and to write about a city that's hundreds or even thousands of miles away during a pandemic. So they'll be covering the projects that they've been involved with, everything from looking at Norwich through webcams to uh, investigating our independent bookshops to following the canals and waterways through the area. Uh, I think there'll be some really, really fascinating discussions taking place. And they're also being chaired by some fantastic writers too. So we've got uh, Megan Bradbury, who'll be chairing the event in March. And we've got Patrick Barkham, who'll be chairing the event in April. And again, they're completely free to sign up to. If you head over to the website, nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, and under what's on, click on Meet the World. Yep. And we'll have these residents coming to the podcast in the future as well. So keep an ear out for them or two. Both ears. Yes, if you can afford them. Afford them. They're expensive ears. Okay, so let's hand over to Peggy chatting with Stephen and John. Okay, great. Well, we'll just get into it to talk about To Olivia, a Sky original film, only on Sky Cinema from the 19th of February. What a great pleasure, to have you both with us, John and Stephen. I just want to get straight into the film, John, if I may. If you could just set the scene for us, just tell us about To Olivia and this particular moment in the lives of Roald Dahl and Patricia Neal, if you would, to kick us off. Yeah, of course. The film takes place around the early 60s. Essentially, it's the story of Patricia Neal and Roald Dahl were living in the country. Roald Dahl was writing. He just published his first children's book, James and the Giant Peach, but he'd never really found any success at all. So he wasn't the Roald Dahl as we know him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was living with Patricia Neal, who was a movie star at the time, but uh, they were living there with their family. She'd moved over from the States and uh, sort of like she was working as an actress. Now, 
depends how much you want me to go on, because the more I go on, it obviously becomes a spoiler for the film itself. But uh, let's just say that it sort of revolves very much about the tragedy of the death of their daughter, Olivia, and how Roald Dahl was writing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and how Patricia Neal and, and, and him dealt with it in very, very different ways. It's based on your book, Stephen, An Unquiet Life, um, and just just takes a very sort of a, a specific window in what's a much bigger exploration of the life of Patricia Neal. Could you um, just at this point tell us a little bit more about her? Because I think that she's not as well known, certainly in the UK, as, as, as Roald Dahl. Could you say, say about her for us? Well, certainly. Patricia uh, was an American, of course. She was uh, born in Kentucky and she was raised in Knoxville. She went to broad, uh, she studied at Northwestern University and uh, went to Broadway and won the very, very first Tony Award ever handed out and quickly accepted a contract with Warner Brothers. She started her film career in 1948. 1949, she made the film uh, The Fountainhead with Gary Cooper, and um, that also led to a love affair with Gary Cooper. Uh, tragedy befell them and her career did not pan out the first time in Hollywood. And she returned back to New York in 1952 to appear in Lillian Hellman's The Children's Hour. And at that time, she met Roald Dahl and they married and they started their family in 1955. They had Olivia, their first child, their second child, Tessa. And in 1960, while Patricia uh, was appearing on Broadway in The Miracle Worker, uh, she became pregnant with their son, Theo. Tragedy befell them, though. The whole series of uh, unfortunate incidences happened. Uh, and in 1961, when Theo was just a few months old, he was hit by a taxi cab in uh, New York in his pram and um, suffered severe uh, trauma to his head. And... Um, Roll and Patricia, who had been living since 1952, six months in, in the United States, six months at Great Missenden, uh, elected to move to uh, England permanently because Roll felt that uh, he could get better medical care there. And um, for a couple of years, Theo suffered um, encephalitis, I believe is how you pronounce it, uh, swelling of the brain. and. And Rawl worked uh, overtime with a couple of other gentlemen to develop a, a valve, which would release the pressure, release the liquids that built up in the brain, which Theo never really actually had to use because he outgrew those particular symptoms. Um, that following year then is where the film takes place, 1962. It was a very important year uh, for all, for the family, for Rual, for Patricia. And uh, this is basically what the film is about. Um, um, it's overwhelming for most of us to think about the loss of a child. But in 1962, there was no gamma globulin, I think is what it was called, for illnesses with children in England readily available. Um, and had the dolls stayed in the United States, the children would have had the vaccine very readily available for them. But this was not the case that happened. So the family is torn apart as their careers are, are in flux at that time. And uh, John and David have developed a screenplay that 
I think emotionally hits it right on the head in that emotions are universal, what they went through. Wonderful, Stephen. Thank you. John, can, can I, there's, a, there's a, lot, a lot of dates and figures and facts in Stephen's book. You know, it's a huge, a hugely detailed and, and beautifully drawn uh, sort of study of a life. How then do you kind of take that book and, and, and zero in on, on one sad chapter in what's a, a big book and two huge lives? Could you just tell us a little bit about kind of your approach to that um, process? I think when you're looking, I mean, when you're looking for a biography, you, you, you know, there's plenty out there on Wikipedia. I mean, I think the, the bare facts of the, uh, of, uh, of the Dahl's life together is sort of like there and readily available. I think what Stephen, Stephen gave it was he, he knew Patricia very well, particularly near the end, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying that she shared a lot of confidences with him. And what I felt was that it had the quality of a memory, that she was, you know, sort of processing the death of Olivia, her relationship with Dahl, her relationship with Gary Cooper, so that when Stephen writes it, whether he's aware of it or not, he's uh, writing very much as if it, it, very much through her point of view. And what I loved about it was that, sort of like you think, oh, you think at the beginning of the film, you're you're writing, you you know, you're gonna you're gonna hear a story about Roald Dahl, but by default, it becomes a story about Patricia Neal and how she sort of like came through the other side in a way, in a much more, you know, less aggressive way than Roald Dahl did. And I think that's what, I think Stephen has a wonderful way of capturing very much the woman that she was then. And that inspired me to make the film feel very much like a memory that it had, that when we were writing it and I was directing it and we were performing it, it's sort of like you're moving around from daylight to, you know, sort of like, you're not really seeing it from the children's point of view because it's an adult film. You're seeing their death very much from the point of view of the adults. You're challenging the audience by showing them, you know, you're not, you don't have that BBC One version where you're sitting around holding your daughter's hand as she's dying. It becomes very much as that experience was lived by the parents. And again, as I keep saying, the quality of memory and the structure and the, the, the feel of a, of a memory. That's exactly it. Could you say a little bit more about that sort of sense of a of a film being a collaborative endeavour in a way that Stephen, you know, this book clearly was was written from a place of enormous love and admiration for Patricia Neal, and and how that then feels to collaborate in a way with with both John and the creative team and and the cast, of course, with Hugh Bonneville and and Keely Hawes. Could you start, Stephen, just by talking about you know that process of, of sort of letting go, I suppose, of the book when I started. The, the book. This was my first biography. And I had uh, read, since I was a kid, I had read uh, adult biography. And as a former actor, I was familiar with the process of acting, etc. And uh, of course, I do remember in the mid-1960s, when Patricia herself had her uh, series of strokes, I remember how that affected my mother, who was a contemporary of Pat's. And she saved all the clippings from the newspaper uh, of 39-year-old Patricia Neal, who uh, is pregnant with child and has her uh, strokes. She saved those. And for some reason, I had those in my possession, segue to New York in the early 1990s. I was working off-Broadway in a play that had won some awards. And Philip Langner brought Patricia to a performance of that play. And Patricia and I just became friends. And she looked at me uh, on that first meeting and she said, why are you so uh, interested in my life? 
And I said, because you have, uh, it was a career that was interrupted. And uh, I'm surprised that nobody has written about it because I remember when I was young, her performances in The Day the Earth Stood Still and, and uh, a couple of early films as well as A Face and The Cub and of course, HUD. And um, Pat and I kind of bonded. And when I started the book uh, after 9-11, I had been in corporate America in New York and Pat kept asking me, are you ever going to write my biography? We'd been friends for about 10 years at that point. And so I, I did. And she said, but the most important thing, she said, I'll open all my archives. I'll open all my letters to you. I'll tell you this, I'll tell you that. Uh, and I knew a lot more about her in those 10 years than I thought I did. She gave me this information and she made me swear. She said, don't make it a fan-based book. She said, I don't walk on water. She said, I'm first and foremost an actress. She said, uh, tell it warts and all. So that I did. And I wrote the book as candidly as I could. And she was very, very pleased with us with that. The process of writing the book was... Uh, eye-opening to me because I couldn't let it go. You had mentioned, you know, when do you let it go? Well, I couldn't. And finally, the publisher, I had to, I had to, had to put the final period to the, to the work and I handed it in. And um, I remember Pat telling me, she said, uh, she, she was pleased with the book very much. She had written her own autobiography as I am back in the eighties. But this clarified a lot of chronology, a lot of facts. There were a lot of things. As a biographer, you're also a historian. You can't bend the truth just to satisfy the ego or the wants of, of others. So uh, I wrote the truth, and, and Pat uh, and I butted heads on a couple of things. But I, I told her, I said, these are our, when I read the uh, original manuscript to her at Martha's Vineyard, and she uh, told me, she said, well, if this is the truth, and this is what I want, want it to be. So she was pleased with the book when it came out. Um, when I was approached by Goldcrest to do this project, I asked, of course, for a copy of the script. And at that time, it was many scripts, many, drafts. many uh, yeah. uh, different versions back. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I have a propensity of overwriting, and I would send these lengthy, lengthy they even agitated me, uh, emails to John and David. Uh, you know, I had a lot of questions I, I wanted to know. It, things were explained to me. Both gentlemen took time and patience with me to uh, tell me that there were some things that had to, had to uh, meet uh, cinematic uh, terminology. And uh, in the final analysis, though, uh, I... <laughs> always meditate when I, when I write. I always do a bit of meditation uh, with every chapter, every page I did on Patricia Neal and on Quiet Life. Uh, I cleared my head, I cleared my prejudices, I cleared everything out of my head to, do, to write the truth. In my mind, uh, I know that Patricia would be happy with the final results. The fact that this is about her dearly beloved Olivia I think the film has uh, really done justice to that particular period of Pat's life. 
Thank you, Stephen. Um, and and two two very sort of you know powerful performances at the heart of this this film. And continuing on a on a collaboration theme, I suppose, John, could you say a bit more about working with with Hugh Bonneville and and Keely Hawes and how you you know your role in kind of in in drawing those performances out? I suppose I always think I'm not an actor, but I, I would have thought it would be you know quite a challenge to play figures that already have a sort of telling in the world. If you know what I mean? Yeah. No, very much so. Hugh and Keeley work in very different ways. I mean, Hugh was involved very much in the development of the script. I mean, he looked at every draft. He'd make notes. He'd do sort of comparison. Um, And Keeley works in a much more instinctive way and sort of like with what's in front of her. Um, So, you know, there is no no particular way of directing because there's no particular way of acting or one particular technique. I think everyone needs some different sort of sight type of sustenance. But the bottom line is if you cast the right people, you've got, that's 80% of it right. I think that's the truth of it. If you've got the wrong person, you're just fighting a losing battle. And the great thing is that when you're, it's just sometimes, you've got to remember that by the time you turn up on set, somebody's been working with a voice coach for months. They've been watching every, you know, they've watched every version of, you know, hard in Sam Huen's case. Um, you know, they've, They've sort of like worked through every draft of the script. They know all their lines, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So when you actually come to it, sometimes it's just sort of like messing around with the sort of like mussing, I call it mussing the mussing the hair, really, and just trying to make something a bit, bit more messy and a bit different, really, because everything's been so sort of planned out in such extraordinary detail um, prior to that. And I think that's, that's the key. So sometimes I'll just make a tiny adjustment and say, you know, you're playing it angry, just, you know, you can still be angry, but show that you still love him. And I think sometimes like that, you'll open up a scene and give it something different. But, you know, I just, uh, I just, I don't know how to act. I mean, I'm a director. I mean, that's the great thing. I mean, I just love watching, you know, great craftspeople at work. And I don't tell them how to act. But sometimes, for example, when um, the young kids were working, you know, Darcy, who, who plays Olivia, didn't know how to be unconscious. Now, I don't know how to give anyone that technique, and I don't particularly like kids who have too much technique or have done too much. Stage school. But, you know, Keely worked with her and just showed her how to be unconscious. And I came back five minutes later and bang, you know, that kid looked unconscious. It was extraordinary. Tell us a little bit about the other atmospheres then of this film, if you would, you know, sort of thinking about recreating Gypsy House and the and, and the music by Debbie Wiseman as well. I mean, just, could you just kind of fill us in on those other levers that, that help tell this particular story? Well, I didn't, I suppose, again, it's once you've got a big idea, I had, I had two big ideas. One big idea, which was that it all feels like a memory and a nightmare at times. And, a, you know, and the other big idea is that it's it's their grief, but it's anyone's grief. And I think, Stevens, you know, touched upon that, you know, and I think that was something I got from a conversation with Stephen earlier that, you know, even though that uh, Patricia was a huge star at the time and Roald Dahl, you know, became an icon, I think that that, you know, sort of what I found was it could be anyone's story. And I think we've all experienced grief. And so the other big idea is that I decided that I wanted it to go through the five stages of grief. So it does, it goes from denial to anger, to bargaining, to depression, and finally to acceptance. And I think I found that sort of those five stages of grief so useful, having lost my sister and, you know, when I lost my mother and all this, when grief sort of 
you know, subsumes you, subsumes everything else, just takes everything away like a tidal wave. And how do you come out and start breathing again on the other side? And I think that's the inspiration in the film is how they use that grief to bring to you know to to bring creativity and in different ways um, sort of like came out with a you know changed with the with a different you know the the grief had informed their creative process. And if you feel that, do you, Stephen? Well, I do feel that. As a matter of fact, Pat and I had talked about that. You know, there were certain liberties that were taken with with uh, the story, but when Pat and Ruol were going through the process, for instance, with Theo's uh, uh, recovery and his illness, um, she told me, and I think she even wrote it in her own book, that, that she and Ruol were possibly uh, never as more intimate with each other because their emotions were raw. Their, their, their emotions were on their, on their cuff and uh, they had to deal, they had to cope, they had uh, other children at that time when Theo's, uh, Theo almost died. And um, so when your emotions are there and they're on the surface, I think any creative individual, not deliberately, not uh, thinkingly, uh, will use that. But they're there, those emotions are there. And Rawl obviously used that in his writing. And Patricia, certainly during HUD, was uh, using those particular emotions that she and uh, her family were going through. Uh, unfortunately, when uh, Olivia did pass away, um, there was a lot of tension, a lot of the five steps, as you talked about, uh, definitely there. It's interesting uh, with Patricia Neal, uh, because I knew her very well. When she wrote her book, I, when, and I wrote my book, I asked several people who knew her before her illness, her own illness, is this the Patricia Neal that I know? Is this the Patricia Neal that I'm talking to? Uh, how different is she? And they said, no, this is, this is her. This is really her. And it's very interesting. Patricia could probably not tell you what she had for breakfast on any given day but she could watching a film she could remember a color of a garment she could remember a lot of things that were not in her book and she would tell me things she would a lot of the long-term memory was still there uh, short-term memory was not and, as, and this is something uh, when when I wrote the chronology of these particular years with Pat and Ruol um, she differed she uh did not uh, appreciate the fact that I went against what she, what her book uh, said uh, about the chronology. But I told her, I, I remember sitting with her and how do you look a, a mother in the eye who has lost a child and she's telling you that's not, that's not the time frame. that's not. And I told her, I said, well, Pat, all the emotions are there. Everything that you felt, everything that you wrote about you and Rural, uh, all those, all that rawness, all that hurt, all that anger, it's all there. It was all true, but these, these are, these are the facts, ma'am. And um, to the day she, to the day she went to her grave, she, she uh, differed with me on particular things. But those emotions that, that were captured in the screenplay, emotions that both Keeley and uh, Hugh 
and Sam. Uh, I know that when they were filming, uh, right before they were filming his scenes, Sam wanted to know about Paul Newman. Well, I knew I knew Paul Newman peripherally. I met him a, a few times, and I had a wonderful interview with him. And I, I wrote wrote it, the whole interview in the book, I believe. But I I remember telling you, just have Sam look at HUD, watch HUD, watch HUD over and over again if he wants to know who Paul Newman was, because Paul Newman became HUD Bannon, and that's exactly what Sam did. There are a couple of brief glances that he makes in these two very uh, telling scenes that are brilliant because he knew, and, and I, I can see Paul doing those, those glances too. He'd look at Joanne once in a while when we were talking and Sam captured that very well. So uh, I think actors, because they work on emotions and, and actors have to rely on their instincts. I think uh, the cast in this film really pulled it together because those emotions are there. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's absolutely right, Stephen. I think it's, um, you know, you've both mentioned grief and, and sort of constellation, but it's a remarkable time for this film to land um, after, uh, well, the, the, the time we're still in. But yet it, it kind of moves towards a, a hopeful place, you know, a celebration of perhaps of creativity and of art. Um, how far, I mean, that must be an extraordinary thing to have a, a film that's been a long time coming um, to land at this particular moment, John. Yeah, I wish I wish it hadn't, though, or this particular moment wasn't here for it to land, I suppose, yes. But it is, yes. It was. A, I mean, we changed the, we put the title on at the end. My um, producer, Donal, has always thought that, I mean, I, we, we've always had a little debate between us, shall we say, that um, he always felt that, you know, we should we should allude to the time in which you know they say that a great a great film should say as much about the time it's made as the time it's set, and I think that's you know that that we should in some way allude to these times because if we don't, we're ignoring something that people are going to infer, and I think that's a really and that sort of brought me round because in a way I didn't really want didn't feel the need for the caption, but in the end it sort of felt. We sort of like, I just thought everyone's going to infer that, so we might as well acknowledge it. This period is so extraordinary. It feels in some way that it needs to be marked by a film that's come out right slap bang in the middle of it. You know. I've just got a couple of little small questions for you both now, and we're, we're coming to our, our, our close, really. But I was just really drawn, Stephen, in your book about um, you you itemise kind of Roald Dahl's own process. So I'm, I'm, I'm quoting you here of his writing shed. He says it's small and tight and dark and the curtains are always drawn and it's a kind of womb. And he has a thermos of coffee and he sort of, you know, tears through scores and scores of, of pencils to to get his stories out. I just wanted to start with you and then, John, just a little bit about your creative process, really. It, it, what, what is the, uh, the creative womb for you, as it were? I've been asked that before, and I can't give you an answer because every project I've done has been different. But I try to try to have some kind of template, some kind of uh, process uh, with writing biography do your research and that can take years. And if you're uh, doing a bread and butter project, it, it better be done quickly. But uh, after the process of collecting information, then you go to the correct sources, you go to the usual haunts, you do your research. And uh, in my case, on a personal level, I try to get started as early in the morning, oftentimes in the dark, uh, as early in the morning as possible after a little coffee. 
I meditate and then I begin my work. And with biography, it's just putting a puzzle together. But the process of writing a complete biography is that you have to be wise enough to know where to go for those sources of information. You have to go to uh, the original sources if you can and not rely, being with Patricia for 20 years and traveling uh, with a celebrity, you hear the same stories over and over and over again, and they become elaborated and sometimes they, they uh, change. And after a while, the, the myth becomes the legend or the legend becomes the, the myth or what, however that goes. Uh, I like facts, I'm a historian. And so uh, the, anybody can write a dictionary, anybody can write uh, an encyclopedia, but you gotta make it interesting too. I found a lot, of, uh, a lot of interesting things with Patricia's story. Patricia is more well known here in the United States. Uh, and I knew that American audiences would wanna hear that. But um, that process, if you will, I think it varies, it's subjective. It varies from writer to writer. Uh, I just try to clear my mind to make sure that I'm not editorializing and I do my work. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very different for me because obviously I'm, I, I wrote this with my a co-writer I work with, Dave Logan, and, you know, we both, we do one draft and then he'll do another draft and we'll come back and forth and we'll argue and we'll fight and we'll say we need to do this or change this, you know. So it is a very collaborative process, but one in which we're, the great thing about a writing partnership is you constantly be, you know, the other person, it was, I always think that when a writing partners deliver a script, it's about five times further than a, a draft that had been delivered by one writer because you've constantly challenged each other and said, oh, are you sure you need this scene? This scene feels very first draft. What about doing this? What about doing that? And I think that's what, you know, working with Dave gives me. But it, it's, you know, Stephen's so right. It's different with everything. I mean, I remember doing an adaptation of... Um, Jamila Gavin's uh, Coram Boy a few years ago. And it would only be written at night. I just, this, it would not allow my, I couldn't, I tried to write it in the day, but it just wouldn't like, it didn't like it. And I could never write. So I had to write it at night. I remember about four o'clock in the morning one, it's obviously set in 1726 or whatever. I remember I was sitting there with an angle poised light and I was so deeply in the script. I just, I tried to blow out the angle poised light because I thought it was a lantern. So that's how deeply you can live in that world. And it's quite scary, isn't it, Stephen? Yeah. It is. It is. You lose a lot of sleep. <laughs> Just as our time together comes to an end, a final little question, uh, something that um, in, the, in the book, Patricia Neal is quoted as saying, I don't conk easy. You know, she's, she's made a life of making this friend of uncertainty. And that's something that I really took from, from the film, you know, this kind of traveling and hope and, and, you know, kind of making peace with that. I just wonder what you hope, uh, John and then Stephen, what you hope people will take from the film. As I say, I keep going back, I suppose, that this is a story about grief. And it, it, even though it's the story about two, two people who became very well known, I think it's a story about grief for everyone and how you come out the other side. And whether you use creativity or you use work or how you come out, you always come out changed and you always come out with a bit of the person who's died left inside you. And it's how you use that person. And I think that that's what, in a way, that what, um, you know, Patricia and Roald did. And I think that in some ways, you know, that old cliche that we are, you know, everyone, everyone who's died lives inside of us is so, so true. But it's what you do with them and, you know, how you you allow them to live on and how you 
um, yeah, allow them to challenge your life or change it or, you know, add to your creativity or whatever. And I think that's, that's the takeaway for me, that um, grief isn't always a, a negative thing. It can be a positive thing, and even though it doesn't always, it never wears that, um, it never has that demeanor at the beginning. But oftentimes that, that realization doesn't happen until it's all over. I think what I took from, the, from seeing the film, and I think what everybody takes when they go through a process of, of grief, is that you survive it. And uh, it's always nice to have a happy ending. But you're right, that part of grief lives with you. You just have to know how to process it and how to continue your life with it. Each and every one of those individuals have learned something from that particular incident uh, in the film, how to overcome it, and they know that they will survive. I, I just uh, think Patricia's story and Raul's story, these people uh, are, were celebrities, they're people that, that uh, we all knew, and yet in the film they are made very human, and, and that process then unites the viewer with the, with the reality of the script. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you both very, very much for um, talking to us so candidly about about this process and this this film. It's it's out this week. We're excited. We'll we'll be we'll be there watching, um, and wish you the very very best with it uh, with it coming out. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Steph. Thank you, Peggy. Okay. Many thanks to Stephen Michael Shearer and John Hay, and of course Peggy for asking the questions. If you have any questions or want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. You can follow us on Facebook and sign up to our newsletter over on the website, which is nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. We also have a lovely Discord channel full of writers from all over the world. If you'd like to get in on that, you can see a link to it down in the show notes. Please do subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast app and make sure to rate and review us as well because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.